Ephesians chapter 4. You can use one of those pew Bibles if you wish. It's on page 1158, if you're unfamiliar with the location of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, page 1158. Start reading at verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Can we pray? God, we praise you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, a great mystery. And what is even more mysterious is that you love us so faithfully. Lord, we confess that we are a wayward people, that we are a disobedient people, that our hearts are so easily caught up in the things of the world, that our affections are so easily swayed to the things that don't matter. Lord, we confess that we are faithless to one another, that we don't hold up our commitments to one another. Lord, we've been hurt even this week by people who've broken promises to us and have failed us in different ways. But Lord, we thank you that even though we are so faithless to one another and to you, you are such a faithful God that you never leave us nor forsake us, that from eternity past you have pledged and covenanted your saving love toward us in Christ, that you have been nothing to us but faithful, faithful, faithful. And so God, as we come to you this morning, we come not because we are worthy, but because you have made us worthy in Christ, because you are faithful. We come, Lord, because you love us and because your word tells us that we can come into your presence boldly. And so, Lord, it's in the confidence of who you are that we can even draw near to you. It's in the confidence that you love us that we can love you in return. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning, be with us as a church. Lord, uh, there are many sick and hurting in our church. It seems right now, for some reason, at this season in our church's life, there are many who are sick with different diseases, with cancer, with various ailments. Lord, I pray this morning for Sue Reed, one of our sisters, who... I just went into the hospital this morning with appendicitis. God, we pray that you'd be with her, that you would heal her and protect her. Lord, be with many in our church who are, who are struggling with diseases, some of them uh, grave diseases. We think of Orville Lim, Steve Wolf, John Sargent, Sue Tardnico, Marilyn Livingston, Colleen Curran. Lord, there are others that I don't even know of who are wrestling with cancer, with diseases. Lord, we pray that you would sustain their lives and heal them and strengthen them this morning. God, be with our church as we uh, move into uncharted waters, starting a third worship service. We've never really done this, God. And so we pray that you would uh, support us and provide for us. 
Our desire, God, is not to build some huge institution. Our desire is to provide a place for anyone who wants to worship you. And so, God, we pray that you might uh, enable us to launch this third service. I pray, Lord, speak to each heart in this church and tell us what role you want us to play in serving, whether it's ushers or sound crew or nursery or, or whatever, God. I pray that you would put us into the places you want us to be in. And Lord, we pray now that as we open up your word, you might continue to be faithful, that you might speak to our hearts. Lord, that you might uh, talk to every one of us individually. I have no idea, Lord, what needs are on the hearts of this people today. I, I, I don't even know some of them. They've walked through the door we've never even met in person before. But I thank you, God, that from eternity past you have known each person. And even at this moment, you know the deepest needs of our hearts, even more than we do. And so pray, Lord, that as we open up your word, your spirit might speak to those deep needs. God, I pray that everyone would be able to say this afternoon around lunch, God spoke to me today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is Ephesians 4.30. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I know last week Seth preached on verses 31 to 5-2, but I want to backtrack to 4.30. I, I guess I, I was worried. Seth preached on four verses, and I thought that was moving a little fast. So, you know, I, I, wanted to, I don't want to rush here, I, and I don't want to get crazy. So we're going to just slow down and go back to one verse. Uh, Ephesians 4.30, which is just an amazing little verse. It's, it's a gold nugget. It's packed with amazing uh, truth and blessings for us. Ephesians 4.30. It says... And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Isn't that an amazing thought that when I sin, when I disobey God, because that's what this whole passage is about, is about obedience. When I disobey God, I grieve or hurt or in some way cause pain to the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about that. In the same way that a wayward child breaks her parent's heart, or an unfaithful husband pierces his spouse's soul. In the same way, we pain, cause hurt, grief to the Holy Spirit when we sin against God. It's just an incredible thought. It, like I said, there's so much packed in here. I think one thing that this passage does is it teaches us some amazing things about the Holy Spirit, which we as Baptists, of course, need a little bit of instruction on. We're a little thin on, on our understanding of the Holy Spirit, typically as Baptists. So this is a chance to really learn a little bit about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot here in that one sentence. There, there's a lot of information about the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I see about the Holy Spirit in this verse is that the Holy Spirit is a person. You see that? The Holy Spirit is a person. And that kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? It's a person. I don't mean a person in the sense of a human being, like the Holy Spirit's walking around somewhere in a body but a person in the more abstract philosophical sense of a being with rationality, emotion, and will. The Holy Spirit can think. The Holy Spirit has feelings. The Holy Spirit can communicate. The Holy Spirit can make decisions. The Holy Spirit can interact with us. The Holy Spirit enters into relationships. It's a person. That's why it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, you don't grieve a guppy. You don't grieve a rock. You grieve a person. A person is grieved. A person implies, a, a grieving implies that there's someone with whom I'm in a relationship and I've done something to hurt that person and that person has the intellect to realize they were hurt. They have the emotions to feel it. 
So the Holy Spirit is a person. Isn't that an incredible thought? Now, I think that's important because my guess is that, and I'm speaking of myself too, when I think of the Holy Spirit, I naturally think of the Holy Spirit as more of a force, sort of a power, you know, sort of an impersonal energy or something. That, that when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as if it's just some sort of euphemistic way of talking about God's power. We think perhaps of the Holy Spirit like the force on Star Wars. This energy field. Maybe you can just imagine little Yoda standing there with his eyes closed and his arm outstretched. And here's Luke's X-Wing fighter rising up out of the swamp and, and Yoda is manipulating the force and moving the spaceship onto dry land. You know, judge me by my size, do you? You know, and he's... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and he's working the force, and this little, this little lizard of a guy can do these great things. And maybe that's what we think of the Holy Spirit, like it's this force. And if you can just learn to manipulate this force, you can do magical things. But that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a force. It's not the New Age idea of like an energy field that binds us all together. The Holy Spirit's a person. It's a person. The Holy Spirit can be spoken to. The Holy Spirit has emotions and feelings. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, look at your sermon notes, which is this insert in your bulletin. Ephesians 4.30 says on the front, it says the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or power at the top there, but rather the Holy Spirit is a person with intellect, will, and emotion. The Holy Spirit can feel, think, decide, act, communicate, and enter into relationships. So, for instance, uh, just a couple texts. We could cite a lot more texts. But here's John 14, 26. Jesus said, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Notice that the Holy Spirit's called the Counselor. That's a, a personal kind of thing. The, the, the counseling is not something that an impersonal force does. That, that's what a being does. It comforts us. And then notice that the Holy Spirit teaches and reminds. Again, those are activities of a person. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. Look at Acts 8.29, the next one there. The Spirit said to Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. It's very specific communication. Or Acts 13.2. While we were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me, the Holy Spirit saying, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas for the work uh, to which I have called them. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit is a person. He, he sets people apart. He, he talks about himself. You know, that's what persons do. They have a sense of self-awareness. They can say, set a person apart for me. Or look at this final quote at the bottom, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Paul says, all these, speaking of spiritual gifts, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit who gives them to each one, here you go, just as He determines. That's very personal language. I mean, why are there different gifts and spiritual gifts in the body? Why is it that one person has a gift of teaching and preaching, another person has a gift of servanthood and mercy, another person has a gift of leadership, another person has a gift of music? Why are there different gifts in the body of Christ? And the answer is because the Holy Spirit decided who to give to what, what to give to whom. He's the one who said, all right, this person's going to have that gift. The Holy Spirit determines it sovereignly. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And again, this may be a different kind of thought for us, but there are three persons in the Godhead. There is one God in three persons.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God and only one God who exists in three centers of consciousness. And that's what we call the Trinity. Someone says, whoa, 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 whoa. the Trinity? That doesn't make any sense to me. That sounds like you're doing double talk. One God, three persons. How can that be? Explain the Trinity to me. And I have no idea how it works. I cannot explain the Trinity to you. I have no philosophical explanation. I've read what theologians have to say. I've read Jonathan Edwards' explanation of the Trinity and C.S. Lewis's explanation of the Trinity. And it helps, but nothing ever decisively explains it for me. And do you know why I can't explain the Trinity to you? Because the Trinity, the triune God, has never explained it to us fully. What we have in Scripture is enough evidence and enough text to show us that there is indeed one God who exists in three persons. There's plenty of that in the Scripture. What we don't have in the Scripture is an explanation of how that works. And we say, well, how does that fit together? And God just doesn't tell us. And so it's yet another one of those frustrating things where God's told me enough to give me the doctrine, but not enough to explain it to my rational satisfaction. And so he calls me forth in a step of faith to, to what he has revealed. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a force. It's not an energy field. It's a person who can speak, communicate, uh, think, feel, decide, act. But notice another thing about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only a person, but the Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit is not only a person, but personal. And what I mean by personal is the Holy Spirit enters into personal relationships with us. That this person relates to the saints in an intimate communion and fellowship. You know, it'd be one thing if we just said the Holy Spirit's a person, but the Holy Spirit's way out there in outer space somewhere, and you, you can't talk to the Holy Spirit. I mean, that'd be one thing. It's another thing to say the person of the Holy Spirit has come into me to dwell in an intimate communion with me. That's totally different. You know, Bill Gates is a person, but I have no personal relationship to Bill Gates, and so I can't really ask him for a billion dollars. Uh, you know, he'll, he wouldn't know me from Adam. He wouldn't care. Uh, Serena and v, Venus are Williams, but they're not going to help me with my tennis serve. Not that anyone really could give me any help uh, with my tennis serve. Uh, you know, they wouldn't do it. I say, will you help me with my tennis serve? They'd be like, get away from me. You know, here's an autograph. You know, beat it. Well, it's because they don't know me. So it's not just to have to be a person, but the Holy Spirit is also personal. The Holy Spirit has entered into an intimate, personal communion with the saints. And I think that's implied here in the grieving of the Spirit. To grieve the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit's a person, but also that the Holy Spirit's close to me. It implies that I'm close enough to the Spirit that when I sin, it hurts the Spirit. Just as if, uh, if I were to sin against my wife, it would hurt her. There's some kind of bond between us and the Holy Spirit, a deep connection. In fact, it's even more blatantly stated at the end of verse 30. You see that? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is God's seal upon us. Now, you know in the ancient world, they use seals. You know what a seal is, right? There's these rings, these necklaces, and they have like an engraving on it that sort of stands out. And so in the ancient world, if you made a, a sale or, a, or some kind of legal document, you would take your seal and you would you know, squish it into the clay or into the wax. And every seal was hand-carved. It was unique. So you knew that if that seal was on that object, you knew it belonged to whoever. That's how. Today we use notary public, right? You sign your document and the notary public stamps it. Well, t back then they used seals. 
And so the idea is that God marks his ownership upon us with the presence of the Holy Spirit. That when you became a Christian, at the moment of your conversion, not sometime later in your Christianity, but at the moment of your conversion, God put his Holy Spirit in your heart. He took his signet ring off, and he said, this one is mine. And he put the Holy Spirit into the soft clay of your soul so that you are forever marked as belonging to God. God's seal, the Holy Spirit, is in you and upon you as a Christian. And this happens at the time of our conversion. So whether you're the newest, most clueless baby Christian who just became a Christian last week and you have no idea what's going on, you believe in Jesus, but that's all you know and you're just starting off on this Christian journey, or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years and you're a faithful follower of Jesus, either way, if you're truly in Christ, you have the same Holy Spirit living within you, that there is now an intimate relationship with the triune God by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so that seal is the seal for the day of redemption. Do you see that? He has, uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day of redemption, of course, is the judgment day. It's the final day, the end of history, when we will all stand before God. And the way God knows who are his and who aren't his on that day is because he looks for his seal. On that great day when he puts on this side all those who've trusted in Christ, and on this side all those who've rejected Christ to be sent away from him forever, on that great day of judgment, the way he's going to know who's who, he's going to look for the seal. And when he sees the seal of the Holy Spirit, he'll know that the Holy Spirit is there, that that person belongs to him. So every one of you who's a Christian, who's truly born again and saved, has the Holy Spirit within them. Isn't that an amazing thought? I mean, let's just stop and let that one soak in a minute before we rush on here. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Can you believe how much God loves you? That not only did the Father select you to be saved, and not only did the Son secure your salvation by dying for you on the cross, but God the Holy Spirit has now sealed that salvation to your soul and has come to dwell inside of you. The third person of the Trinity, the God who made this whole universe, the God who raised Christ from the dead, the God who every second is upholding the fabric of reality with his power, that same awesome, awesome God has chosen to live in you and in me as believers. And so I now literally have entered into the fellowship of the Trinity. That the community of the triune God, forever blessed, forever joyful, forever rejoicing in holiness and, and glory, I've gotten a backstage pass into that. And I'm an insider now in the Trinity because the Holy Spirit dwells within me. Can you believe how much God loves you? Can you believe it? And so, let's not grieve the Holy Spirit. If, if we have this great blessing within us, the person of the Holy Spirit in a personal, intimate, eternal relationship with me, why would I want to grieve the Holy Spirit? Let us stay away from sin. Let's flee from sin. So Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? Why sin grieves the Holy Spirit? Because if the Holy Spirit, keyword here, Holy Spirit, is living in me, and I engage in unholy activities, 
Well, of course that's going to be repugnant and painful to the Spirit who's dwelling in me. If I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit and you're the temple of the Holy Spirit and the, the Holy Spirit is in me and, and I do something unholy with my, my actions or some unholy, uh, foul, um, hurtful, divisive words come out of my mouth or some uh, gross, covetous, angry, bitter, lustful, whatever thoughts go on in my brain, the Holy Spirit is right there. And it's going to grieve and hurt the Holy Spirit. It's going to pain the Holy Spirit in some sense because I'm in a personal relationship with the triune God who dwells within me through the Spirit. Maybe this would be helpful. Maybe it would be helpful to uh, think about the implications of what happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit. Maybe that would be a way of sort of getting our hands around this. What happens when you grieve the Spirit? What are the consequences? I mean, I understand the concept that my sin grieves the Spirit who lives in me. But, but what, practically speaking, comes out of that out of sin and out of grieving the Holy Spirit. And let me just, uh, in closing, suggest three things that happen when we grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first thing that happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit is we disrupt our personal communion with God. Grieving the Holy Spirit disrupts our personal communion with God. And of course it makes sense, right? If the reason I can enter into a, a, an intimate relationship with the God of creation is because the Spirit's within me, and I grieve that spirit, well, then I'm, I'm putting tension on my relationship with God. Uh, and so, you know, this is going to sound strange to some of you, I realize. Some of you here aren't believers. You're just checking out this Christianity thing. You're feeling it out. And here I am talking about the Holy Spirit and feeling the Holy Spirit and a personal relationship with God. This may just sound really weird to you. And I can't explain it to you. <laughs> Become a Christian and find out what I'm talking about. But those of you who are Christians know... It can't explain it. I mean, I can't put a formula on it. I can't describe it to you scientifically. I'm just saying that when I became a Christian, this whole new thing opened up, and it was called a relationship with God. And suddenly, I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but I somehow sense God's presence in my life. God speaks to me. God prompts me. God convicts me. I read the Bible, and, and instead of just being a book, it's like coming alive and shouting at me. And I try to read the Bible, and now the Bible's reading me. I mean, it's all this weird stuff happens, and you become a Christian. And it's the Holy Spirit in my life. And when I disobey God, and you know this if you're a Christian, when you disobey God, when you walk away from God, that, that sense of communion with God just kind of gets fuzzy. And I, again, I can't quite describe what it is, except that if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. It just gets fuzzy, and God seems far away, and and I can't pray the same way, and I can't worship, and I don't have any more desire to read the Scripture, and I fall into temptation easier than I did when I was walking with God. And it's because there's this closeness that I have with God that's disrupted. It doesn't mean I've lost God. It's just that there's a, a disruption in my, in my relationship. Just as if I, I offend my wife. You know, I'm in the doghouse, right? Same thing. You know, I, I sent, not that that happens often, but, you know, when it does on rare occasion... You know, there's a distance between us, and, and so we have to put that back together. Or those of you who are little kids, you know if you do something bad, naughty, and your parents are upset with you, they still love you, they're still your parents, but you know that you just got to tiptoe around them a little bit. You know that there's something just not quite right between you. That's how it is with us and God. When I was thinking about this idea of disrupting our communion with God, I, I thought of uh, an illustration. I thought of the President's Day storm this year. Remember the President's Day storm? what was it, two feet of snow or whatever we got? 
I remember it because I was sitting on the runway at Logan Airport waiting to take off to go to Florida for vacation that day. And the snow was like, and the, it was total whiteout outside, and they got the big de-icing things, you know, spraying off the wings, and the wind is whipping, and, and I'm just thinking, are we going to get off the ground here, or am I going to be stuck, not just in Massachusetts, but in, you know, comfy, warm, hospitable Logan Airport? I mean, this, is, this could be a really bad thing. And so I'm praying, you know, oh, just let us get off the ground. I know if we can just lift off. And sure enough, we got off the ground, went to Florida, probably a couple hours before the airport was totally shut down. And it had this incredible experience of flying up through the storm and all the wind and all the snow and suddenly popping out above the clouds. And it was sunny. It was like sunshine. Yeah, I could have gone out in the wings, spread out a towel, you know, sunbathe. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. And I, and I looked down, and there's this swirling chaos of snow you couldn't, and, and, and clouds. You couldn't see anything. It must have been what Noah felt like. You know, and he was sitting in his ark, and he's looking down on just the destruction below him. And, and I want you to know that when I was going up over the clouds heading to Florida, I did think of you. Um, <laughs> I thought of you. That's the kind of guy I am. I was, I was thinking of you as I was heading to Florida. God's son of love is all the time, forever, shining upon believers. If you are a Christian, God's Son of Love is forever, all the time, shining upon you. It never stops shining. God never turns away from you. The Son of God's love never sets. If you are a child of God, you are forever saved. There is no such thing as losing your salvation. This is just a, a cockeyed idea. <laughs> it, it's, it's silly. How can you become unborn again? How can you become unsaved? How can you go out of God's family? I mean, it's ridiculous. If you're saved, and that's the if, if you're saved, you belong to God's family. But what can happen is that the clouds can roll in. And when I sin, when I live apart from God, when I go my own way in my relationship with Christ, it's like the clouds roll in. God's still shining. God still loves me. But the difference is I can't really feel the warmth anymore. And it starts to get chilly, and things get dark, and it's harder to see. And life gets more complex and convoluted. Whereas when I was walking with Christ, everything seemed clear. And now that I've wandered away from Christ, it's all kind of confused, and I can't think through things. God still loves you. You're still in God's family. The sun is still shining. But, but that sin is now covering over your relationship with Christ. And so as a result, it feels as if God has abandoned me. It feels as if God has turned away, even though I'm the one who's turned away. And it gets colder and colder and darker and darker, and the snow starts piling up. I say, where are you, God? And God's like, I'm still right here. You know, the problem isn't me going anywhere. I still love you. It's just get rid of the sin in your life. I mean, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you've wandered away from God for a long time. The snow's real deep. I'm telling you, you can still turn back. It may have taken you five years to wander to the point where you're at today. But if you will just turn on your heel, confess your sin, and turn back to Christ, I'm telling you the clouds will part, and God will come down and meet with you again. Just as Jesus stood up in the boat and said to the storm, be still, quiet, and immediately, it was still. So in the same way, when we repent and say, Christ, I've wandered so far, I want to turn back to you, forgiveness, the clouds open, the storm goes away, and you're in the presence of God again. God wants to receive you back to himself. He wants me and you to walk in fellowship with him. And so to experience all the blessings of salvation, we need to stay in a holy relationship with God.
You can't ever lose your salvation, but you can lose the experience of salvation's blessings to various degrees through sin and disobedience. So let's not sin. Let's not disobey the Holy Spirit. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let's keep that personal communion with God intact. A second thing that happens, though, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, not only do I disrupt my personal communion with God, but I secondly disrupt the community of faith among believers. The community of faith. It's not only a vertical element, there's also a, a horizontal element. When I grieve the Holy Spirit, I also, in a sense, disrupt the unity of the church. Because the Holy Spirit is the church's unity. It's the Holy Spirit that brings unity to the church. The same Holy Spirit that's in me is in every other believer. And that's what binds us together. Hey, have you ever had the experience of uh, maybe you're in school or at the office or sitting on the beach talking to someone, sitting on an airplane, and you start chat chatting, and you find out that person's a Christian? And suddenly it, there's this thing that sort of pops up in your heart, this love for that person. Oh, you're a Christian? And instantly this total stranger is not like your best friend. And, and you feel like you can just talk to this person. There's this openness. That's what happens. That's the Holy Spirit binding us together. That's not something you're whipping up. I mean, that's a supernatural reality that I am unified with every other believer because we all have the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. Look back at Ephesians 4, uh, verse 3. Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So it is the Holy Spirit who creates a supernatural unity in the church. And so logically, if I grieve the Holy Spirit, if I resist the Spirit and oppose the work of the Spirit in my life, it's going to have some kind of effect on the unity of the body. That's why there's no such thing as just a personal sin in the body of Christ. Even my most personal private sins affect you because you have the Spirit, I have the Spirit, and we're connected together in the body of Christ. There's some kind of disruption. And again, it's tough to put your finger on what it is. I wish I could explain it more. But just like there's this communion with God that's sort of mysterious, there's this communion among the saints that's very mysterious. And sin disrupts that. Show me a church where the people are flagrantly walking away from God. Show me a church where the people wink at sin and, and adopt worldly values. And I will show you a church filled with divisions, fighting, and conflict. Because the same Holy Spirit who dwells within us is the one who creates unity. And when we resist the Spirit through sin, it will inevitably have a, a, a deleterious effect on the unity of the church. So the secret to church unity is what? Is it a greeting ministry? Is that what creates a warm fellowship within the body? No. The secret to church unity is having a good usher squad. Is that it? No. Is the secret to church unity having big fellowship meals where everyone gets together and eats together? No. Maybe the secret to church unity is having a small group structure and a cell church. That's it. If we have a cell church, then the church will be a big unified family and we'll all be knit together. Will that do it? No. The secret to church unity is one thing. The Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, then unity happens. So we need greeters, but we don't need greeters. We need godly greeters. We don't need ushers. We need holy ushers. We don't need people to plan fellowship meals. What we need is people on their knees praying who are planning the fellowship meals. We don't need small group leaders. We need small group leaders who are following Christ zealously. 
And it is as you people do those various activities, those hospitality kind of activities, in a holy way with your life submitted to Christ, that the Holy Spirit's going to flow through us. And that is what will create this supernatural sense of family, warmth, and unity in the church. My friends, show me a church where the people are following Christ, where the people are seeking holiness, where the people want to live according to the Spirit. And I will show you a church that's tight. I will show you a church where there is love and harmony and where there's this supernatural sense of family. Because as we walk in step with the Spirit, He creates a unity within the church because the Spirit is the Spirit of unity. So our last point here, disrupting the Holy Spirit, or I should say grieving the Holy Spirit with sin, has at least three deleterious effects. One is that it, it disrupts my personal communion with God. Number two, it disrupts the community of the church. And the third effect is that it disrupts my capacity for ministry. My capacity for ministry. So there's three C's for you. Yes, I worked very hard. I searched these sources trying to get these three C's. Communion with God, the community of faith, and my capacity for ministry. Again, think of the logic. It's the Holy Spirit that does the ministry. It's the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that, that saves somebody or grows someone up in their faith. And so if I'm not doing ministry in the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's not flowing through me, then no real ministry is going to take place. You can have a big church, you can have a busy church, but if the Holy Spirit's not flowing through the ministry of the church, you're not going to have eternal results. It's the Holy Spirit's presence that causes ministry to happen in the body of Christ. An evangelist can give the best evangelistic sermon ever, use the best illustrations, be compelling and gripping, and the, the evangelist can give an altar call, and hundreds of people can come forward to receive Jesus. But if the Holy Spirit isn't there touching the hearts, no one's going to be saved. It's just going to be a, a very emotional experience. The preacher can preach the best sermon of his life. He can have the best, most well-crafted sermon, every word in place, every illustration perfectly poised, perfect enunciation, everything. The preacher can preach his heart out. But if the Holy Spirit is not preaching through the preacher, then the preacher might as well just preach to a pile of wood. Nothing's going to happen of, of true spiritual value. I mean, the people may say, wow, that was a great sermon. But if the Holy Spirit is not coming to each heart, including the preachers, and pricking it, then nothing of eternal value takes place. You can be in the nursery, helping, serving. But unless you're doing it in the power of the Spirit, that message of love and hospitality is not going to come through to the new family who brings their baby into the nursery. And so whatever ministry you do, I don't care what it is, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be people who are filled up with the Holy Spirit. The most important thing you can do for whatever ministry you have is to walk in step with the Spirit, to obey God. You can have a seminary degree. You can have amazing musical talent. You can have incredible business and administrative skills and management skills to bring to a ministry. You can have experience in counseling. You can have experience working with youth. You know, we can have all kinds of pedigree and things, but unless I'm walking in step with the Spirit, all I am is a dry well with no living water to give to those who are in need. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us communion with God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us communion with one another. It's the Holy Spirit who gives our ministry efforts punch and supernatural power. So, let's not grieve the Spirit. Let's walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Let us be an obedient and holy people. 
I heard a story once, sort of a once upon a time story, of a man who went to heaven, and uh, he was being shown around heaven, and, and he saw these huge warehouses. It was like an industrial park. You know, he sort of imagined heaven more like a garden. He said it was an industrial park with all these warehouses. Okay, this is great. You know, what are these warehouses? And, and, the, and the, the angel, St. Peter, is that who shows you around heaven? How do these jokes go? Yeah, St. Peter. He, he says, yeah, come along, come along. And he says, I'm going to show you this warehouse. He opens up the door, and the guy goes inside. It's just filled with boxes and crates. And, and the man says, what is this? And Peter says, these are all the blessings God has for the saints. But they never get to open them and experience them because they won't walk in fellowship with God. And Peter says, this is your warehouse. This is what was coming to you, but, but those times in your life you never walked with God, you never got to have them. And so it is. I believe God has incredible blessings for you. God has incredible things to give to you. Not necessarily material blessings, but spiritual blessings, things you can't even imagine. But to experience them, to enjoy them, to open up those gifts that God has waiting for us, we have to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We can't grieve the Holy Spirit. And so let us leave behind the dry salt flats of sin, and let's enter into the lush, tropical uh, goodness of everything that God wants to do in our lives. And the key is obedience. As we walk in obedience and closeness with God, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. And God wants to do it in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, we ask your forgiveness this morning for grieving you in different ways. Different ones of us, Lord, in different ways this week have grieved you with sinful actions, sinful words, sinful thoughts, sinful behaviors. Lord, there's some of us here who have been grieving you for, for months with our waywardness and our, our uh, worldliness. And we just want to come again and, and just confess that and say we are sorry, we are grieved that you are grieved. Lord, forgive us, cleanse us, and make us a holy people. Lord, we want to be holy. We want all the blessings that you have for us. We want that warehouse to be dumped on us of blessings. But we know, God, that we don't even have the strength to do it. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, empower us with a desire for godliness this morning. Enable us to walk in holiness. I pray, Lord, that South Shore Baptist Church may experience all the blessings you have for this church as we seek total obedience to you. And so, God, I pray, help us. We need your help. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to be a faithful people through whom the Holy Spirit can flow like a mighty river. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.